disagree. Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, and Nico's name is Nico. And this week we are talking about Elvis, the guy, in anticipation for next week's episode about Elvis, the movie, which I've already seen and I'm very excited to talk about. This is just our little our little appetizer for that. Uh, so, Nico, how are you doing? I am doing great. I'm feeling very excited to talk about Elvis. Um Disclaimer, I don't know a ton about Elvis personally, but I still have a lot of experience with him, <laughs> so... Sure, sure. Yeah, it's gonna be a great discussion. It's funny because there's definitely a lot to be known about Elvis. I think this ties into something that's gonna come up in our discussion later, that, like, despite all this wealth of knowledge about him, we're doing this this never-ending series on the Beatles uh, and with Elvis, it's just like, you know, we'll talk about him for like an hour, probably. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think as, as we'll get into later, that sort of speaks to, um, the, the weird kind of, uh, cultural attitude that has developed about Elvis. Yeah, no, I feel like Elvis exists as a kind of mythological figure, um, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he was a real guy who did a bunch of very real stuff, uh, and, you know was alive and with other real people <laughs> yeah was alive very recently like the the fact that elvis died in the late 70s always kind of takes me by surprise even though i've known it for so long no for sure you've already said you don't have much personal or rather you don't know much about elvis but could you uh, share a little bit about your sort of experience with elvis or maybe you know your early how you came to know about him absolutely so my grandmother has been an Elvis fan since it was possible to be an Elvis fan. Um, full on, like, teenage fangirl style <laughs> adoration of Elvis. Um, and so ever since I was little, I have spent a great deal of time listening to and talking about Elvis with my grandma through mm-hmm. that lens of, you know, mythological idolization. Um, and then my family, my, like, my parents, uh, have kind of a general interest in Americana. Um, and so anytime we go on road trips, we always stop at, like, whatever the the big attraction of the place that we're going through is. Um, and so two summers ago, we were going on a road trip up the East Coast, and we had to stop in Graceland. Um, and that was very exciting for me as a person who had spent a lot of time listening to and hearing about Elvis, but still didn't really know a ton about who he was as a person. Um, And Mm. that experience was very odd and very interesting. Graceland does not feel like a real place. (laughs) Uh, My parents definitely were, you know, well past the the Elvis generation. I actually think there might have been like a, a skipped step there, where my mom's mom, I think is a little younger and was probably a little post Elvis. Um, and my dad's parents might've been pre Elvis because they were, you know, born in the thirties. Um, so yeah, I did not grow up around a lot of the idea of Elvis. I feel like my idea of Elvis had more to do with like the, uh, the Elvis impersonators and the people who, you know, claimed that Elvis was still alive and that they saw him, um, 
and yeah, my knowledge of Elvis's music was very like inconsequential. Like, didn't couldn't really tell you a song was an Elvis song. I knew what Elvis looked like, and I knew those. I, I knew the jumpsuit era probably before I knew the like the the you know old school Elvis era but I became aware of both of those icons and then I knew I I would hear like Viva Las Vegas in a in a commercial and I would you know uh see the Jailhouse Rock uh you know that iconic performance and yeah <laughs> just like was did never really had a big impact on my life I I think that's a pretty common thing even though Elvis uh remains the best-selling male solo artist of all time there is um i i think people today knew elvis as a very well-selling artist and an artist who had a lot of fans like people of our generation knew that and then knew that he was uh you know a notorious thief of black music and that just sort of like became the impression and that idea really goes back decades you can listen to fight the power you can listen to uh those those old uh m&m songs where he sort of pokes at that uh it was definitely an idea that had existed in the consciousness i think for decades and i think that is part of the reason that elvis is not really considered among our generation and the generations on either side of us no i i hear that and i definitely think adding to the idea of Elvis as this mythological figure, especially among people our age. I do think that he has this almost tarnished reputation, which contributes in some ways to the image of him that we have in our heads um, as this mythological figure, and less so as like an actual person and musician. Um, his early death, the unfortunate circumstances surrounding his early death, um, to be delicate, um, the fact that he is a notorious thief of black music and kind of the fact that I feel like most of the pop culture references, uh, that I've seen, um, to Elvis in my lifetime are making fun of him. Right. Uh, the mythological figure of Elvis that lives in my head has this kind of duality of larger than life, uh, stage God, um, while also somehow being the butt of every joke. Absolutely. And I think there are things in Elvis's history that we'll definitely get into that sort of signify how that happened. He was obviously always a very uh, flashy performer. Um, something that I had sort of hinted at right at the beginning that I think is uh, interesting. I've heard um, older people talk about how like there was Beatlemania, which we talked about in a recent episode of the show, in the early 60s. And once the Beatles hit, it was like everything from before then was Doris Day. You know, it was already corny. You know, even if if it was Elvis, who was the biggest star in the world, like five years earlier. Um, and so I think Elvis, out of all of the big acts of like the 50s and 40s, Elvis came the closest to having a revival. But then he sort of quickly went into that like Vegas jumpsuit karate kind of era and I think part of that is the fact that throughout the 60s, he was doing like these really cheesy, poorly received movies and was starting mm -hmm. to develop that tarnish before he had that kind of comeback. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of the deterioration after a brief moment where it seemed like he might actually be coming back. Uh, I think really, you know, people sort of bought into Elvis a little bit in the late 60s after thinking he was over and then you know, they, the, 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 he went bust. 
Yeah, yeah, he had, like, a meteoric rise, terrible fall. Oh, looks like he's coming back, maybe he's coming back, and then he fell hard again. <laughs> Two falls in his lifetime. Sets up, sets him up for a lot of jokes. <laughs> so, uh, I have prepared, as always, some notes on the history of Elvis that we can sort of look at as we are uh, analyzing all of this. Elvis was born in Tupelo, Mississippi in 1935. Uh, his name was taken from his father's middle name. His father was Vernon Elvis Presley, and it's like a biblical name or whatever. Um, his family was, you know, German, Scottish, English, French, a little bit of Jewish, a little bit of Cherokee, mostly very white. Um, he had a twin brother who was a stillborn and uh, grew up pretty poor. Uh, he got his first musical inspiration from attending an Assembly of God church when he was a kid. His first musical performance was a rendition of uh, Old Shep, the Red Foley song, and he performed that on stage at age 10 at a, at a talent show dressed as a cowboy. And uh, not long after that, he received a guitar for his birthday and started taking lessons. I think, um, obviously, the Elvis movie is something that will be touched on next week. I think... That movie is very concerned with, like, looking into the ways that Elvis derived his ideas from black artists and um, sort of making an apologetic case about that. But I think something that gets left off the table there and in discussions of him as, like, a thief is that, like, he also took a lot of inspiration from, like, white country artists. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's really significant that you mentioned that his first performance ever, he was dressed as a cowboy. Because I think mm -hmm. another aspect of um, things that contribute to him feeling more like a mythological figure than a real historical person um, is the way that he derived so much of his stage presence from the icon of the Old West cowboy. Like, even yeah. if his outfit, even if his, you know, like, visual presentation was... Not so reflective of that. Uh, I absolutely think the way he chose to present himself on stage was very Marlboro Man. <laughs> yes, and um, I think, in, like, in terms of his like cultural impact, a thing that's often said is that he sort of introduced this the this distillation of country and R and B influences into rock and roll is something that was being done by black artists at that time and he was the one who sort of introduced it to a broader audience or, or a, a, a broader white audience and he was always you know he would in interviews be like well you know black people were doing this like for a while before i was but um there is i think something to how his fusion of the iconography of country and R&B from before his time sort of like just became the sort of like stage on which like pop music was built um and and not to claim that he was like the originator of anything but I think in terms of like he, he had a unique voice and a unique sort of way of fusing these two things that I think sort of we probably take for granted a little bit now um, that like that's just what pop is. But I think when when he came out, certainly to a lot of a lot of the audiences that were being touched by his music, they're like, I've never heard anything even remotely like this before. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the reasons he was able to so effectively um, 
even if he, as a person, wasn't intentionally doing this, I think that's the heart of why he was able to so effectively erase a lot of the Black musicians who he did steal from. Um, yeah. Because Black and white culture were legally and socially separate by appropriating and publicizing this, you know, historically Black music. Um, he brought this kind of art that most white people had never encountered before to them. Um and it is, you know, I don't think that anybody would say that the music that Elvis performed was bad. I like Elvis songs, but for mm. the most part, they aren't actually his songs. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so to go into the history a little more, in middle school, the Presleys lived in a largely black neighborhood where Elvis started to get to ex- get exposed to black music through local radio stations and in high school, also local performances. Uh, they moved... Uh, when he was in high school to a white public housing complex, a segregated uh, complex, and Elvis would start uh, traveling to Beale Street to absorb, like, the local blues scene, see a bunch of shows. Um, yeah, he, he, he was very into, like, the, the Beale Street kind of scene. And he was an obsessive uh, consumer of music as well. Um, he loved uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and he also loved uh, Hank Snow, and just, you know, country R&B and also gospel. These are the the, the makings of Elvis as well. The as, Holy Trinity. You know, yeah, as i said many times. Yeah, he would attend black churches, which is apparently an activity that, like, the, the, the cool white kids in the south at that time would 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 do that just for <laughs> for for like cool points that's gross <laughs> it's insane bb uh, <laughs> king recalled having met him at uh, at this time they encountered each other at a recording session at sun records and they came to know each other a little better later on in their career they stayed uh, friends Sun is where Elvis began his recording career just months after graduating high school. He, um, I, I think he had done like a talent show or something and he was like, I'm going to do music. And so he just uh, got set up at Sun. Uh, the, the head of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, had this idea that uh, he could make a killing by introducing uh, rock and roll to white audiences um, his receptionist recalls him saying, quote, if I could find a white man who had the black sound and the black feel, I could make a billion dollars. And, and this is something that I think comes up over and over again in the Elvis story is that uh, more so than Elvis himself wanting to be like a profiteer off of black sounds, there were a lot of people around him who saw that he had the rock and roll star factor and were like, we can exploit this sound and sell it to white people and make a lot of money. Yeah, and I do think, like, there's a very dominant narrative, and it sounds like this comes through in the Elvis movie, which we'll talk about more next week, um, as well, of Elvis the person not being the arbiter of his own career, essentially, Mm -hmm. and therefore not being responsible for things like the appropriation of Black music, um, those sorts of aspects of his uh, reputation that are less savory and you know we can talk about the music industry and the way the music industry exploits musicians as much as we want to um and we can talk about you know elvis the person citing the black musicians who he learned from um which was not (laughs) common um Mm -hmm. but also he was 
a popular white musician in the 50s. Um, and if you look at the way he lived his life, even if he wasn't necessarily blatantly racist or actively violent to non-white people, um, he definitely lived his life in ways that reinforced structural inequality. Um, it's true. And it, it became more true as time went on also. But um, as he got more money. The, yeah. <laughs> About like, other things, so, but... Well, and yeah. I think it's significant also, you mentioned at the um, earlier when we were talking about his childhood, that he grew up poor, and that because he grew up poor, he grew up in largely non-white and typically largely black communities, um, where he was exposed to all of the music that eventually made him famous and eventually took him out of those communities because he made more money. So the mm -hmm. class history of Elvis, I think, is something not to be ignored. Absolutely it's um and we'll, we'll get into the specific circumstances of uh elvis's career and people do tend to paint um colonel tom parker who's going to be the the big figure we'll be talking about and sort of the main character of the movie um is uh it, it is sort of cited as like the one who is really like exploiting this culture and exploiting elvis himself i think and the movie definitely paints elvis as an innocent i think probably a little too much it, i think the way that especially the way that it ignores like the later career like nixon stuff and all that i think it really um tries to really uh uh whitewash the the, the image of elvis as as a per elvis the person who we're just who was what we're talking <laughs> about this week and um i think it's definitely a little more complicated than that even though uh we don't even it, like like even though we can't say that Elvis himself was like was like a, a vicious racist, the lifestyle that he led and the way that he sort of maneuvered, less so in the early portions of his career, but uh, with time he definitely sort of profited from. He sort of set this blueprint of like profiting from black sounds, getting popular, and then sort of moving on to different things. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, he received, uh, uh, Sam Phillips, the Sun guy, received a demo uh, by a black singer, Jimmy Sweeney, and handed it off to Elvis. That particular song never got released, but Sam Phillips was like, okay, there is something here. And he, he booked a recording session around, you know, this this idea, that this wild idea that he had, that he could uh, have a white guy making black music. Um and at the very end of that session, Elvis played a cover of Arthur Crudup's That's All Right, which he claims to have heard Crudup play live when he was a kid. Uh, and Sam Phillips loves it. Um, and it gets recorded. It gets sent to Dewey Phillips, who's a Memphis DJ, and he plays it on the radio three days later. Uh, and things just sort of build from there in a way. Elvis starts performing not long after that. He develops his... His uh, rubber legs dance style that um, obviously was a big topic of controversy early in his career. Uh, he had he performs at the Grand Ole Opry when he's like, you know, eighteen or whatever, and it's a disaster. Uh, <laughs> but after that, he starts frequenting the Louisiana Hayride, and they love him. Uh, his manager at this time is Bob Neal, who's a DJ, and he connects him with Colonel Tom Parker who is this, uh, this promoter who had already managed Eddie Arnold, who was a big country star. He got his honorary colonel title from Jimmy Davis, who was also a country star and became the governor of Louisiana. Uh, and the colonel is a very interesting... 
character, someone who the movie definitely pretty much paints as the villain of of the Elvis story, and who some people say say it's quite a bit more complicated than that. He is uh, someone who claimed to be from Huntington, West Virginia, and it was revealed later on that he was actually Dutch. Uh, and he, he had, like, illegally immigrated to the U.S. in, like, the late 20s, early 30s. There's theories that he was, like, uh, a suspect in this murder that happened. Um, but he, uh, yeah, took on a new name, took on the, the name Tom Parker, which was not his real name. And he, he, he enlisted in the Army, and he didn't have uh, uh, identification. So they said, this is fine, but you have to um get citizenship whatever and he never did so (laughs) uh yeah he was just um a very strange character and someone who uh quickly picked up on elvis and was like i can i can make you a star that's a crazy shit that's some crazy shit the fact that he was potentially a suspect in a murder um i know nothing about this man but i (laughs) am very intrigued he's an intriguing fella uh, the Colonel was currently managing Hank Snow, who, as I said earlier, Elvis was a big fan of. Uh, and he had Elvis open for Hank on his tour, uh, which, you know, started getting him media attention for his, quote, curious blend of R&B and country. Huh. This blend also made Elvis a tough sell for the, the segregated radio stations because the, uh, the, the, the... The white stations were like, well, he sounds black, and the black stations were like, well, he sounds like a hillbilly kind of. So they, <laughs> he didn't get a lot of radio play in this time. The colonel, uh, pretty much at the end of this tour, completely dropped Hank and became a full-time special advisor to Elvis. They toured extensively throughout the South in 1955, including as an opening act for Bill Haley and his Comets. Bill Haley was the one who advised Elvis to cut back on ballads and do more like, uh, you know, dancey kind of songs. And the Colonel got Elvis a $40,000 deal at RCA Victor, which was a record-breaking contract at the time. I mean, I feel like this whole kind of early development of Elvis's career, I feel like really speaks to the long history of, uh, since the beginning of the U.S., of um, white people recognizing that they can make money off of black people. <laughs> right. Essentially. Um, the fact that this, uh, the kind of first person at Sun um, who said, if I can find a white performer who can sing black music, I can make a billion dollars. Um I don't think that that was actually a crazy idea because that's been the blueprint for everything for the entire history of the U.S. So absolutely right, yeah. the blueprint for that within the music industry at the time. But that's just applying the same old tricks <laughs> to a new industry. Um, and then, of course, this $40,000 deal with RCA. Um, once again, uh, capitalists <laughs> recognizing um, that the best way to make money uh, is to steal the art of the most oppressed people. <laughs> yeah, um, I think part of it is... Uh, th- there are other elements at play, too. I do think Absolutely. that uh, the, the colonel had this background. First of all, selling these country artists, and second of all, um, as a like circus manager... Um, <laughs> <Excuse me? laughs> 
Yeah, this is also something that's very heavily explored in the movie, that he was someone who, um, you know, had had these ideas about, like, how to, like, sell things to audiences. Gotcha. Uh, and, and he definitely made some, some savvy business moves on Elvis's part. It also, I think, speaks a little bit to, like, how, how complicated this is <laughs> from the perspective of Elvis. Yes. Who, you know, um, is, is really blending a lot of uh influences grew up in a lot of black neighborhoods and then was uh living in like a, a white uh housing complex and still being like entrenched in black culture and how he like i was saying couldn't get played on segregated radio stations because he like... was too confusing well and yeah. i also because he was playing the music that he heard the music that he liked and the music that he wanted to make. He wasn't disingenuous playing the music he played. So I do think there is something to be said here of, like, he was... He fit into the plans of others. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like, Elvis loved cops. <laughs> There's this... I have all right. of these facts about Elvis and cops. Um, so, like, I'm not here to absolve Elvis of any responsibility. Um I don't think that's appropriate. I'm not here to say that Elvis was a wholly good person. I don't think that's accurate. Um, but I do think, like, it is significant to recognize the fact that, especially in the beginning part of his career, he cited his sources, which is still not common. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we'll see as things go on, Elvis was sort of this figure. He, he became sort of like a public enemy number one f- of segregationists because mm-hmm. he was violating segregation laws by going to like like black nights at like clubs and stuff he was you know uh desegregating his audiences he was obviously mixing these genres and um he, he was someone who was really like I, I, again an enemy of the the during this during this segregation debate and sort of like had this interesting turn in a pretty in a relatively quick time later on in his career uh so after the deal his star quickly rises he makes his first tv appearance in early 66 also releases heartbreak hotel which is a hit by february i forgot to remember to forget uh, which is a song that he recorded at sun reached the top of the billboard country chart and uh elvis's self-titled debut dropped in march it was the first rock and roll album to top the billboard chart and it stayed on top of the charts for 10 weeks wow (laughs) (laughs) so there's a lot to be said for that some of it is the colonel some of it is rca some of it again is you know introducing white audiences to uh to rock and roll and um yeah (laughs) just all those things together it's like uh it's another interesting thing that i think uh, does not excuse the act itself but how in the wake of this we see uh black rock and roll artists start to get like like you know little richard and and, Mm -hmm. and ray charles and what have you start to get um more acclaim more attention from from general media and have more chart success and we see the same thing where like the first platinum rap album was licensed to ill but then there were other platinum rap albums shortly thereafter uh uh m&m breaking records and then and then those records being kept by drake and lil wayne and everyone like uh, <laughs> there there's a theft happening that does also 
hmm, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds like it's justifying it, that, but that that does also sort of have an effect of of uplifting the 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 black artists who are being taken from when it's done it, I, I think that does have to be done intentionally in a way but when it is yeah and i do think like um elvis was responsible for introducing rock and roll a black art form um to white audiences and in doing so people who became interested in rock and roll became interested in it <laughs> um and elvis was at least at the time the only widely accessible white rock and roll artist um and so if that became the music that somebody was interested in they could dig for more find chuck berry find you know etc everybody so yes and also the reason that had to happen in the first place um is structural inequality legally enforced segregation um culturally enforced racism like it did propel black artists to higher fame however they were suppressed in the first place because of the racism that allowed elvis to become famous yeah and there were also like there were rock hits before that and then it was just like elvis you know shattered all the records because he had this advantage right and um again he is still the top-selling male solo artist of all time so (laughs) (laughs) how far did those opportunities go right um and uh in a way i guess you could say that figures like uh beatles and 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 led zeppelin uh failed to sort of (laughs) to, to sort of have the second part of that bargain where uh where uh their black influences were sort of being uplifted right by their success um yeah it's complicated (laughs) yeah and i do think like i really think the most significant thing to remember here is that elvis's success was possible in the first place because of the suppression of black artists of course yes as he started performing more publicly he also started to court more controversy uh june 5th of 60 of uh 56 he um makes an appearance on the milton burl show and he and this is the performance where he's performing Hound Dog, and at one point he slows it down to do more gyrating. <laughs> uh, and um, the New York Times TV critic Jack Gold said, "Quote: Mr. Presley has no discernible singing ability. His phrasing, if it can be called that, consists of the stereotype variations that go with a beginner's aria in a bathtub. His one <laughs> specialty." is an accented movement of the body primarily identified with the repertoire of the blonde bombshells of the burlesque runway. Oh, I love the gender fuckery of that. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's delicious. It's really interesting also, though, because, like, one of the most prominent and consistent ways my grandma describes Elvis is talking about how beautiful his voice is and how beautiful mm-hmm. his vocal tone is and how incredibly talented of a singer he is. And so it's interesting to me that this, uh, one of these early critiques is saying that his singing skill is negligible and the only reason people like him is because he's sexy. Um, I think that's funny. Yeah, and it's worth noting that like another element that he's sort of taking uh, is, is this sort of um, playfulness with gender uh that that is you know present in in rock and roll really before that time and you could look at uh little richard just as a contemporary example but Mm -hmm. he was someone who was coming out 
you know, very pretty, wearing makeup, wearing, like, uh, pink suits that he got on Beale Street, uh, and just sort of, um, yeah, doing these things that he could, he, there was still a lot of backlash towards that, and it's clear that there was a lot of, you know, uh, uh, homophobia built into the way that people were attacking him, but he got away with it because he's white. Yes! Ah, <laughs> uh, um... Which is also still happening. Who's celebrated yep. for gender bending? It's white people. Um, <laughs> yep. Despite the fact that white people did not invent it, and in fact, it is uh, white capitalist colonial structures which led to the gender roles we currently have. Um, <laughs> no, that's. Uh, I love the thread that's developing here of. Elvis as a person who wants to be flashy and wants to have eyes on him performing for the first time at 10 in a cowboy costume. That is faggy behavior, ladies and gents. Yeah, let's keep that rolling. Uh, the tabloids began referring to him as Elvis the pelvis. Famously, he really did not like that. <laughs> uh and on July 1st of that year, it's interesting because, like, the movie is such a whirlwind, and at the time I was like, this is just nuts. But a lot of this a lot of this significant stuff in Elvis's career really did just happen like a few weeks apart from each other. Wow, yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into it more, but on July 1st, he appeared on the Steve Allen show in a white tie and tails, singing Hound Dog to a literal basset hound. Uh, and this was meant to showcase the new Elvis. This was meant to be like in response to all this controversy. This is the family-friendly Elvis. This is the Elvis your kids can listen to. Um, and he hated it. He called it the most embarrassing performance of his career. <laughs> he expressed confusion at the public outcry towards his performances saying quote i don't feel like i'm doing anything wrong i don't see how any type of music would have any bad influence on people when it's only music and the day after the steve allen performance he recorded the studio versions of hound dog and don't be cruel and then a few days after that he returned to memphis and sort of gave this this you know in defiance of the steve allen new elvis thing he said on stage those people in new york are not going to change me none i'm going to show you what the real elvis is like tonight and gave this very very raucous you know classic elvis performance in august a judge in jacksonville ordered him to clean up his act when he was <laughs> performing in jacksonville uh, he gave a restrained performance there but he wiggled his finger in defiance of the of the order <laughs> that's hilarious he's like i will not wiggle my hips but i will wiggle my finger uh the don't be cruel and hound dog they were released as a single and they topped the charts for 11 weeks which was a record that elvis held until boys to men's end of the road in 1992 wow <laughs> good for boys to men though good for boys to men and it's like what happened in 91 is they like changed the algorithm of the billboard oh. charts because like everything that had come out in the 80s was like like all the charts from that whole decade are just like wrong <laughs> okay awesome <laughs> so they uh you know updated it and so from like 1992 to 1994 there's like a succession of new record-breaking songs, like, four or five of them in a row. Okay. And uh, that that tops out with the Mariah Carey Boys to Men song, which holds that until, I think, Despacito. So... Until yeah. Despacito. Okay. Yeah. Work. Exactly. Uh, Ed Sullivan had been critical of Elvis, calling him, quote, not friendly for families, but 
after Steve Allen's Elvis episode beat Ed Sullivan in the ratings, he was like, I got to book this guy. And he booked Elvis for an unprecedented $50,000 three appearance deal. Holy shit. His first appearance was watched by 82.6% of America's TV viewing audience. What the hell? That's <laughs> That makes sense to me. Um, he's extremely divisive, very polarizing. Everybody wants to get a piece of Elvis so they can have an informed opinion. And um, there's this new Elvis, old Elvis thing happening where they're like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Yeah. That's so, you got to respect to a certain degree utilizing the like Christian moral panic as a marketing ploy. Um, I feel like, I mean, obviously today we have Lil Nas X riding that train straight to the bank. It's a great, it's a great strategy. If you want to make money, make conservatives mad. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and this, this is also something that would happen in the 50s, though. That's just like, you know, everyone watches I Love Lucy. Whatever the special week, is. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody watches the Ed Sullivan show every week. Exactly. Until until Elvis is on Steve Allen, and then it's another story. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, actually, that episode of Ed Sullivan didn't even have Ed Sullivan. He was recovering from a car accident, and Charles Lawton filled in for him. Famously, uh, Ed Sullivan allegedly had his producers shoot Elvis from the waist up. Uh, <laughs> watching his other appearances, Ed Sullivan said, quote, that Elvis had, quote, got some kind of device hanging down below the crotch of his pants. So when he moves his legs back and forth, you can see the outline of his cock. I think it's a Coke bottle. We just can't have this on a Sunday night. It's a family show. That's insane. Ed <laughs> Sullivan was like absolutely no suggestion of genitals. And also, there's no way that's true. Like, there's no way that's true. Elvis was not packing to make it look like right? <laughs> the like, show dick outline. That was not happening. Yeah, I mean, the, this was the big thing of the controversy is that he was, you know, doing the wiggling thing and he was always wearing these, like, loose pants and it was like, and I guess Ed Sullivan was up there with the magnifying glass, like, I can see his cock. <laughs> there is a crumb of penis. This is not allowed. Still, only the third appearance was actually uh, only shot from the waist up and some speculate that the colonel orchestrated this appearance of censorship to get, like, more controversy. Exactly. You gotta prey on the Christian moral panic. Exactly. Exactly. He had all kinds of, like, clever moves to to do that. He sold pins that said, I hate Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, this, sorry, this is just making me think of the YouTube dislike button. Mm -hmm. Um, which just increases the engagement with your video, which increases the chance, algorithmically, that it will be pushed out to viewers. If people hate you... They will engage with content about how much they hate you. Uh, one time, a newspaper insinuated that Elvis was gay, and someone showed it to the colonel, and he's quoted as saying, did they spell his name right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all press is good press. That's hilarious. Exactly. Great stuff. I'm actually a gay Elvis truther. I think that Elvis was definitely gay, and because he was gay, he did nothing wrong ever. <laughs> that's a quote by Boz Lerman <laughs> uh, it was at this point that Elvis became a national phenomenon 
he as we've said many times he brought the rock and roll sound to a to a big white audience uh by the end of the year uh elvis had dropped more hit records he had dropped his first movie love me tender and he had made 22 million off of merchandising alone 22 Uh, million yes in the 50s in 1956 jesus fucking christ okay (laughs) And remember, the Steve Allen performance was, like, halfway through the year. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my God. I mean, this is another thing, and this is also exploring the movie, that the Colonel just sold, like, everything Elvis branded. And there was an Elvis board game and, like, an Elvis juicer. And you could just, like, <laughs> buy whatever you want with Elvis on it. Right. Because this is also the heyday of the Sears catalog. Exactly. People are buying shit from catalogs left and right, and if it has Elvis's face on it, I want it. Uh, at Ed Sullivan's request, Elvis closed out his last appearance with a gentler tune. He's he sang Peace in the Valley, which is a gospel song by Mahalia Jackson, uh, whom Elvis was a big fan of. And then two days later, he was drafted. <laughs> Work! <laughs> he got the initial draft letter two days later. It actually took like a year for him to actually be drafted, but right. that, that entered the conversation at that point. And in the time between getting his letter and actually shipping off, Elvis bought Graceland, recorded, uh, like, several albums, uh, an EP, released his second film, had another number one hit, Jailhouse Rock. Uh, He went on three tours, which were characterized by a particularly violent crowd response, and they would, you know, go crazy after the show and trash the stage and shit. Mm. A Detroit newspaper said, quote, The trouble with going to see Elvis Presley is that you're liable to get killed. Wow. He recorded his Christmas album during this time. It's still the best-selling Christmas album of all time in the U.S. He got his actual draft letter on December 20th, 1957, but he got a deferment to finish his fourth movie, King Creole. And finally, in, like, March 58, he formally joined the military. Yeah. Did—I'm going to ask you this question because I think you probably have facts on it. Did being drafted and joining the military and going to war— um, rehabilitate his image among, con- like, within conservative America. Yes, and there is a lot of speculation that that was somehow intentional. Uh, certainly the colonel leaned into that as, like, a way to clean up his image. Right. Uh, there, there are different stories about, like, how, how direct that was and if he was, like, working on the inside to make that happen. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, definitely, like... Once they got that letter and they had like a year and a half to plan, they were like, okay, we're going to clean up your image. You're going to go off to war and come home and we're going to do an Elvis's back thing and everyone's going to love you. Yeah, no, um, because didn't he do press junkets like in his like army drag and everything? Yeah, uh, like like as he shipped off and then he uh, came back when his mom died and I think uh, did a couple appearances then. Um, not very frequently while he was away, but there was it was definitely like heavily publicized that he was that he was going to he was in Germany. It wasn't like <laughs> yeah. you know he was going somewhere nuts, but he was just just going off. Mm-hmm. No, that's really funny. I can I have this image in my head of the colonel like calling the red phone in the White Office, White House <laughs> office, Oval Office, and being like Dwight, baby, I need a favor, get my man Elvis <laughs> in the military, not in Korea though. Don't put him in Korea. While stationed in Germany, Elvis was introduced to two new passions, amphetamines and karate. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm hooked. Yeah. 
Yeah, two two lifelong interests of him from that point on. He also met a fourteen year old Priscilla um, <laughs> Bolu, whom he would whom he would marry seven years later. Uh, and at the time, he was twenty four. That's totally fine and normal that a twenty four year old met a fourteen year old who he would then marry. Yep. Yeah. Is there's just so much shit there because he like he obviously was grooming her. They would have like. He would sleep over at Graceland, or excuse me, she would sleep over at Graceland when she was still a teenager and when they were ostensibly not in any kind of relationship with one another. Um, there's evidence that he would drug her um, to affect her sleep. Um, like, there's a bunch of shit that's just, like, really terrible in their relationship. But I think the details of their meeting are enough <laughs> to be like, oh, yeah, no, that's bad. <laughs> Yeah, another thing that is uh, quite suspiciously glossed over in the movie. <laughs> Just... Really? They don't address it in the movie? They don't. They, like, we see them meet, and then we see later in the movie, Priscilla is like, I'm 30 and you're 40. And it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, um, that's us. <laughs> Not great. Uh, another thing that they were able to do is RCA got this big back catalog of unreleased Elvis music so they could keep putting out shit while he was away. Um, during his military career, he had 10 top 40 hits and three compilation albums. That's, yeah, make that money. Yeah. That, <laughs> I do feel like that contributes to the narrative of Elvis being an exploited pawn in mm -hmm. a producer and promoter's game having this backlog of content to release while he is away to keep people interested and engaged in buying his music yeah when elvis returned rca quickly rushed out new music he um his first new single like his first newly recorded single stuck on you was released three weeks after he got back to the u.s wow quickly became a number one hit his album elvis is back was recorded two weeks later and released two days after it was recorded <laughs> that's insane who did they have mixing the album i don't know that's like that does not sound humane <laughs> for anyone involved they were like even though they had this whole stockpile it was like thank god you're back we need to push i think because again they were really pushing this media narrative about him going away and coming back and doing the elvis's back thing that like yeah once they had the press cycle of him actually returning they were like we need to release something now and it has to be new it can't be like and here's music elvis recorded three years ago it's like yeah. and here's yeah. music elvis has recorded since he has come back from active duty yeah, it's like when rappers do a, a first day out freestyle. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> he, you know, worked pretty consistently after that, but he quickly got into the habit of uh, working on movies a lot and just doing soundtracks for the movies. This was also at the behest of Colonel Parker, who uh, was like, your previous movies were hits and all the singles from the movies were hits, so we're just going to have you do movie after movie after movie, and the music will just be part of the package. That's a strategy. I don't know if it's a good strategy. I mean, I'm sure it made them a lot of money. Yeah, and the 60s were definitely not a very welcoming time for this kind of, like, Hollywood machine, you know, pump-and-dump movie. <laughs> like, this was after the, after the Paramount decision and the studio system had kind of collapsed, so it was like, to, to see Elvis in this, like, 
in this like sort of uh bing crosby just like throw him in anything mode Mm -hmm. uh really was uh it it didn't sell for audiences that makes sense he made 27 movies during the 1960s so excuse me that's two and a half movies a year that's right that's (laughs) no (laughs) i'd say no to that pretty bad uh almost none of which were well received (laughs) yeah the uh soundtrack albums performed well at first and then over time just kind of slowly went down people were like this shit again for for some reason they were like we're doing this model where we're just doing movies and making soundtracks for the movies and when that was clearly not working they just kept doing it for fucking eight years that's uh why (laughs) why though and a big part of it the reason that uh his you know he had these soundtrack hits in the early 60s uh the this band called the beatles showed up (laughs) ah yes i think i've heard of them (laughs) we might have talked about them on the show at some point um the beatles happened and uh, like I was saying, anything that was cool before the Beatles was no longer cool. Uh, and and Elvis, who was very much in this like teen idol rock and roll mode before the Beatles were, uh, w- was definitely like the thing of the past. So he kept doing movies, and his audience was mostly like the 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 manic Elvis fans from back in the day, sort of still turning out maybe less and less so as the movies got worse. Right. Um, but like the general public was like firmly not interested in Elvis <laughs> by like sixty four. Honestly, probably ultimately bad for his image that he joined the military. Um, with the hindsight of the Beatles coming into popularity, him essentially he didn't disappear from the public eye. People, obviously, as you said, RCA was still releasing music. He was still, you know, known. But the fact that he had been gone and then came back, I feel like it's a a little bit of a, a sputter, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I also just think like the you know the the colonel again made these made these strong sort of business moves for Elvis early in his career, but I think he did not really understand the changes the 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 cultural changes of the 60s some of which were brought on by elvis Mm. (laughs) like like he was in that mode of like okay the next phase of stardom is you've got to do stupid hollywood movies and like five (laughs) of them a year (laughs) which is again just this very 40s 50s sort of idea that really does not hold in this like proto new hollywood era Mm -hmm. um and, and and yeah, I think being unable to like update his music to match with the the the, the changes in the sound. He was um, friendly with the Beatles. They met once, but he kind of harbored a certain resentment for them. And uh, yeah, I also just think he probably didn't have time to like really put effort into his music, and was probably you know just just working with like some writers and and just throwing shit out. Right. 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 Elvis's daughter, Lisa Marie, was born in February of 1968 at a time where Elvis was uh, growing really tired of the way that his career was going. So uh, the colonel 
another, you know, uh, backdoor move of some kind was able to get him a Christmas special on NBC. Uh, that special came to be known as the Elvis comeback special. And it's really the story of like, you know, the Colonel wanted it to be a Christmas special and they wanted to rebrand Elvis as, you know, the kind of person who does like Christmas specials and does, Mm -hmm. you know, just this sort of elder statesman kind of figure. And there was also the director of that special, Steve Binder, and some other people who had sort of been a part of Elvis's circle who were trying to push him in the direction of like getting with the times, doing something radical that also calls back to the things that people liked about Elvis to begin with. Right, 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 right. That also makes sense to me from the standpoint of like kind of a, a family man type branding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has a kid now. He's going to do a Christmas special. It's going to be very sweet. Uh, the closing song of that special was originally going to be I'll Be Home for Christmas, but the director bypassed the colonel and recorded a rendition of Elvis's, this new song that Elvis wrote or had written by uh, Earl Warren, I think, If I Can Dream. And this song was intended as a protest song to just portray Elvis's feelings about the the state of things. It heavily references uh, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Uh, Elvis was a, a fan of, of Martin Luther King, and his death was one of the things that inspired Elvis to sort of pivot into a new direction. Uh, the song's inclusion of in the special was heavily influenced by Bobby Kennedy's death, which happened like during rehearsals for the special. Oh, wow. Elvis's relation to you know civil rights <laughs> um is so fraught <laughs> because i really do think at least he thought that he was progressive um mm-hmm. and i think contextually for the time period in a lot of ways he definitely was but again he's I, ah, the, the his place in history and in society means that regardless of what his personal proclivities were, he he's racist. <laughs> like, even if, again, even if he personally did not harbor consciously racist beliefs, his position in history means that he's racist. Like, it's just true. So, yeah. and it's particularly interesting, then, this kind of fraught contradiction um, where he at multiple stages in his career, was actively inspired by civil rights activists. And yet, he loved to impersonate cops. I And I think this speaks to, because um, Chuck D famously on Fight the Power talks about uh, Elvis was a racist, fuck him, and John Wayne. And I saw, like, an interview with Chuck D. He was talking about, he had actually been in this special about Elvis where he talked about this, how, like, in, he he does a lot of research for his writing, and he said that he, w- w- what he was speaking to in that was the 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 very prominent theft of black culture and the fact that in the cultural consciousness, I I think rock and roll has been seen as a white genre for for a long time, like until very recently, and that is something that I think Elvis sort of sort of spearheaded, mm-hmm. uh, whether he intended to or not. Well, and people I follow many black rock artists on Twitter um, and very regularly see them engage with violent racists in their mentions who are saying shit like, you know, you're stealing white music. This isn't music for black people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, again, it speaks to Elvis's 
position in society that despite the fact that he is a person, again, particularly in the beginning of his career, very, very consistently made it clear that the music he was performing was music that was created by Black communities. And yet he still kind of lives in the cultural consciousness as the, you know, huge air quotes inventor of rock and roll to the point where nobody knows the actual history of the development of rock and roll. And because of this utter violent ignorance, um, will literally harass Black musicians and say that they don't belong in rock music, despite the fact that it is music invented by their people. Um, his position in society leaves an extremely racist legacy. <laughs> yes, and that, that's exactly what, what uh, Chuck D was speaking to in that interview, just like that, that you know, uh, there there are stories about Elvis being personally racist that are like, Uh, that have been debunked but um there's actually one that uh elvis was asked directly about like in the 50s and he was like i never said that and people who know me know i would never say that um but that what what chuck d was saying was like was like yeah his impact was racist and he he lived a he he, (laughs) his impact was more racist than that of like someone who's personally racist but has no influence yeah, he had an immense level of structural power, and his structural power was used to further oppress Black people. Yeah, which will uh, be a, a very interesting prelude to our talk about the movie. <laughs> um, so, If I Can Dream, this protest song is hugely acclaimed. It becomes Elvis's first top 20 hit in a decade, uh, or in nearly a decade, in a long time. Um, Elvis was uh, thrilled with the special, and swore that he would never again sing a song that he didn't believe in. Bold. Yeah, in, in the years that followed, he uh, started to do more like political songs, personal songs, storytelling songs. He did uh, In the Ghetto, Don't Cry Daddy, Suspicious Minds, all in this time. Uh, and this new this new team, Steve Bender and the new team, uh, had plans for him to tour internationally. Uh, but the colonel booked him for a night at for like opening night at Vegas's new international hotel and casino and there he was given carte blanche to do like uh you know he had uh, gospel singers with him he had like you know these lavish karate inspired costumes again this this lifelong passion of his and he uh, had like a you know giant orchestra the colonel was very reticent about this idea of Elvis doing a world tour uh, he, he part part of it might be his lack of a passport. <laughs> part, <laughs> he's like, no, we uh, can't leave the country. Yeah, and he cited uh, uh, security concerns as as uh, as a primary reason. Also, security concerns about him being uh, arrested in the Netherlands. <laughs> in the Netherlands, yeah. But yeah, he you know blew the house down at the international, and he became a regular. Uh, there, yeah, like a five-year, you know, million dollars a year or whatever deal, like, like like a massive deal at the time, and it was partially probably maneuvered in a way to settle the colonel's gambling debts. Uh, oh. He he was he was a big-time gambler, and the, he was sort of given this like unlimited line of credit for the casino as part of the deal. That's really funny, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> that the colonel was like, listen, I will sell you Elvis if you let me gamble as much as I want to. Yeah. <laughs> In 1970, uh, while he was um, he was going on tour, uh, he was you know still doing the international, but he was going on a U.S. tour. I think he was it was a, a show in Texas, and he got a death threat. And he had gotten death threats throughout his career, but he gen- they were generally kept away from him. This one he, he saw, and so he started performing with a concealed gun in his boot. Um. Okay. Sorry, that doesn't make any sense to me. He's performing on stage, and he thinks that he will be able to prevent somebody else from shooting him while he is on stage by keeping a gun on him. Okay. Sure. Sure, Elvis. His next album was noted as a departure from both country and R&B. I was talking about how he had this, like, big orchestra and all the backup singers on stage in Vegas. That sound really makes its way onto the album, and it's very much this, like, bright, cheery, sanitized pop sound that's very popular in the 70s. Mm-hmm. How was that received? Uh, not super well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's this idea that goes, like, even, like, at the end of Elvis's life when he is, like, super unhealthy and can barely walk, where they're like, well, he's still a really great performer. (laughs) You know? Somehow, despite everything, it's like, he can still just put, put, put everything into his vocal performance and and like so so even on this you know super dull even on his dullest records throughout his career it's been like i mean he he just has a lot of passion in his voice right 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 right. he has one hell of a stage presence in uh december of 1970 elvis met with richard nixon fan fucking tastic (laughs) okay here we go he expressed a desire to reach out to uh, hippies and pull them away from uh, from from drug culture. What He's, the fuck? He said, Isn't "I'm he, someone like super addicted to amphetamines." Yeah, <laughs> he he is someone who says, uh, "I have a little bit of credibility." With the hippies, with the Black Panthers, he mentions, and he says, I can help. Why does he think he has credibility with the Panthers? I don't know. I don't know. But he says, I can help defuse this 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 drug menace that we both have an issue with. Oh my god, this drug menace that you created, Mr. Nixon. Um, you put the drugs into the communities and I'm going to get them out. He asked uh, Nixon for a uh, badge, a Bureau of Narcotics badge. Oh my god. Uh, (laughs) He loves impersonating cops. He fucking loves impersonating cops. Exactly. Do you want to share an impersonating cop story? (laughs) So in Graceland, they have a photo of one of his many cars. Um with a blue police light on the top of it. (laughs) And essentially, to make a long story short, Elvis uh, received a police car light from the Memphis Police Department, and a badge, actually, I believe, from the Memphis Police Department, um, and would just drive around uh, and pull people over. (laughs) If people were speeding, Mm -hmm. if people had lights out, whatever, Elvis would pull people over 
Um, and then go up to their cars, berate them for breaking the law, and then give them an autograph instead of a ticket. Um, which, you know, <laughs> potentially a net good, right? Like, these people didn't actually get a ticket, which is good. But Elvis fucking loved impersonating cops and would spend his free time driving around pulling people over for fun. <laughs> he also, uh, was... I did a little bit of research because I was curious how much, um deeper <laughs> this obsession with cops went um in addition to this uh very regularly um when he was like on tour and stuff he would hire police officers to be part of his private security detail um and so he had personal relationships with police departments across the country and as a part of these personal relationships um would get things from these police departments so he had police uniforms for like multiple different police departments from across the country he had an obsession with police officers and was very interested in presenting himself as and positioning himself as a cop. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. Uh, and it seems like Nixon uh, <laughs> was uh, pretty weirded out by that meeting. Because it's um, weird! <laughs> it's very strange. He he declined to give Elvis a badge, uh, saying that Elvis should, quote, retain his credibility. That's a weird... It's a very diplomatic way to turn him down, but that doesn't make any fucking sense, Dick. Like, mm -hmm. what do you mean? Retain his credibility in what? Retained his credibility in impersonating cops, because having a, uh, a Bureau of Narcotics badge would help with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was just looking for an excuse to, like, get Say his Say now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's weird. Uh, get out of my office. Yeah, another thing that he, uh, that Elvis mentioned during this meeting uh, is that he saw the Beatles, who at this time he was regularly performing Beatles songs in Vegas, by the way. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's really funny. Sorry, because going back, you mentioned that he um, harbored resentment for the Beatles for essentially um, blowing out his flame <laughs> of fame. Um, so it's really funny to me that he stooped to the level of performing Beatles songs in Vegas. <laughs> I bet he hated that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a complicated thing because they had also, like I said, met at one point and right. were like friendly for that. But like... It's a very back-and-forth thing. During this meeting, he says that he saw the Beatles as an example of a trend towards anti-Americanism. Nixon said this? Elvis said this. Elvis said this. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Elvis was like, the Beatles, they're a problem. These British invaders. Yeah. That's Elvis really goes to see funny. the president and says, have you considered doing something about the Beatles? <laughs> In the same way that the colonel calls up Dwight Eisenhower and is like, hey, please put Elvis into active duty in a place where there's no active war. Elvis calls up Richard Nixon and is like, dick, baby, please deport the Beatles. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul McCartney was later asked about this and he said, quote, the great joke was that we were taking drugs and look what happened to him. Ah, get him, Paul! <laughs> Oh my god, that's fucking brutal. That's so funny. Also, if he wanted to appeal to hippies, disparaging the Beatles was not the way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, that's really fucking funny. Paul McCartney is petty. He is. 
That's a good Paul line. Um, at this point, Elvis and Priscilla were both having affairs. Delicious. Uh, they broke up after Priscilla revealed that she was sleeping with Elvis's karate instructor. That is the funniest fucking thing I have ever heard. His karate instructor? That's like, yeah. <laughs> there's no deeper blow to Elvis's manhood that I could possibly imagine. <laughs> to have Priscilla be like, you will never be as good as your karate instructor. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Actually, that's awesome. Go, Priscilla. Yeah. I, j- just another fun anecdote before it just gets into, like, he deteriorates in health and dies. Um, around this time, Elvis was in talks to star opposite Barbara Streisand in A Star is Born. Oh my god, that brings it right back around to my grandma, because guess what? After the most recent Lady Gaga A Star Is Born movie came out, my grandma was like, Bradley Cooper is the perfect man. (laughs) Imagine watching the most recent A Star Is Born, (laughs) and seeing, I can't remember his name right now, because I'm a bad media consumer, Um, but seeing Bradley Cooper's character in A Star Is Born, and being like, that's it, That's that's the guy. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like that really explains my grandma's obsession with Elvis also, actually. Um, the fact that Elvis uh, occupying the... The fact that Elvis is appropriate to occupy the same kind of character role. Um, yeah, yeah, no. Uh, which is to say, mm, a pretty shitty guy, all things considered. <laughs> yeah. the at, at this point, it was like Barbara Streisand and uh, John Peters were like, we're going to do this Star is Born movie and we've got to find who's going to be the... I know the Bradley Cooper character is Jackson Maine. I don't remember what the like original name for that character was, but we're gonna got to find the aging rock star who's going to, you know, t- t- take you under uh, his wing. And um, they meet with Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> And the, and the tabloids are, you know, very mean about it. They're like, oh, Elvis is playing an aging rock star. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> That's so, uh, yeah, it, cold. Yeah. Elvis just, there there are talks about it, but Elvis just kind of deteriorates and it never really, like, gets off the ground with them. The thing about that A Star is Born movie is that it was written by Joan Didion. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is something I'd probably have to do uh more research on to really think about like why it was written by joan didion but yeah the the credited writers are uh john gregory dunn who is uh joan didion's husband Mm -hmm. uh frank pearson the director and joan didion that's (laughs) Um, fucking insane okay i guess not that weird of an intersection because it is it's supposed to be like a, a commentary on fame or whatever I guess, but still, it's, it sounds crazy. Yeah, it, it's an inch apart from Elvis having met with Joan Didion to discuss, like, the character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Like that, oh. I can't, sorry, now I'm imagining Joan Didion meeting Elvis. Mm-hmm. I just, oh, the fodder. So much, there's so much to say there about Elvis as a, a figure. Um, in American society. Anyway. Yes. What happened with A Star is Born, by the way, I think I had forgotten this earlier, is that the colonel insisted that Elvis get top billing. Oh. <laughs> Over Barbara Streisand. Yeah. And they Not were like, happen. 
and they were like, Elvis's last 20 movies were bombs. We're not giving him top billing. No. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, so yeah, at this point, Elvis uh, started deteriorating in health. He already had, but like more uh, aggressively. He never really got over his divorce, developed addictions to various prescription drugs, gained a ton of weight as he continued performing in Vegas. Uh, he got glaucoma, hypertension, liver damage, and uh, large colon. Uh, he was, again, delivering these real powerhouse vocal performances on stage, but was said to otherwise be kind of incomprehensible. His cousin said that he reminded him of Howard Hughes. Uh, and then he famously died on the toilet on August 16th, my birthday, 1977. Wow, you're the reincarnation of Elvis. <laughs> yeah, 22 years later. <laughs> <laughs> That's, oh, Elvis is still alive and she's right here. let's back up a second (laughs) yeah so we spend an hour and 15 minutes talking about elvis's terrible racist legacy and then i say that you're elvis you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness oh my goodness well but so that's really interesting (laughs) to hear the narrative of his life spelled out in that way because i feel like it explains why he has the kind of icon status that he has where he exists simultaneously as this kind of larger than life almost godlike performer and also as the butt of every joke like even in his own lifetime as his career was developing he created so much controversy he was the butt of many jokes in his own lifetime um but he did have this incredible meteoric rise to fame and because of this controversy um, was a massive part of the cultural consciousness for a decade or more. Um, so yeah, it makes sense to me um, that even in his own lifetime, he was not thought of as a person. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of elements there. There's the element of him sort of being, you know, thrown around by the colonel and by RCA and, uh, you know, being stamped on every product right. fra- from a very early point in his career. He himself um, is a product. Right. And then also I think the the fact of that comeback special and him putting out, like, the first protest song of his career and it's a big hit, I think that moment in 68, even though it is not remembered very strongly other than that iconic image of him standing behind like his own name in huge letters like other other than that the song isn't really remembered that much but i think that moment really is a big part of the reason that his legacy as like this this you know powerhouse performer this this you know person with a huge impact has remained is because like in that in, in in his most desperate time he turned it around and, and you know reminded everyone of why it was a big deal to begin with and did something new that people really liked that that young people really liked that uh sort of attached himself to a relevant thing it's interesting to note first of all that the colonel was responsible for making that special happen but also that they specifically went against the colonel to put that song out mm-hmm. um uh, and that's the thing that got him put in vegas which helped sort of uh establish it and you know he was like selling out that giant arena for seven years you know he was mm-hmm. to the end like 
still like you know you got to go to vegas and see elvis and so i think that uh he had this very complicated legacy that would have probably stayed that way if not for his 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 the 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 perpetual sort of work uh run that they put him on with those movies and then him having that one moment of coming back at the exact moment for it in the exact right place in the zeitgeist for him to sort of like remain in the cultural memory as this iconic figure yeah woof what a guy (laughs) (laughs) it is uh it is like crazy to me that so much of his um cultural relevance is completely removed from the things he as an individual tried to do to mitigate the racist impacts of his success um again i just think it speaks to the fact that like regardless of his personal beliefs and behaviors which to be clear are in and of themselves not squeaky clean his legacy his legacy is working against him his legacy yeah. is actively contrary to the image he tried to cultivate of himself. Yeah, and I think um, post Beatlemania that like you know his his initial sort of legacy had no impact on concurrent generations because culture had moved forward so much since then, um, yeah. and so I think in that sense it really makes sense that for like Gen X they knew about elvis but the first thing they really knew that was like the 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 first thing in a cool context they heard about elvis was chuck d saying elvis was a racist and then you know two generations later that is still the idea that people have of him and you can see why from that impulse and knowing that the real story is quite a bit more complicated Baz Luhrmann was like i have to make a movie that shows the other side of that in doing so, and we'll we'll talk about this one in the next episode. I think that that he sort of uh, reduced the ways in which his his imp- well, I have to think about if he did. He certainly reduced a lot of things about Elvis, but 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 re- reduced the ways in which his uh, impact was racist, and he was a, a racist figure in history. Yeah, but also I don't think that we necessarily have to be fair to him because there was enough about his behaviors. Um, I'm not here to say Elvis was a bad person. I'm also not here to say Elvis was a good person. I am here to say that it's interesting that we don't ever think or talk about Elvis as a person. Again, we can get into the way the music industry exploits musicians um, a different time. He was not treated like a person in life, and his memory is definitely not regarded um in such a way that he is thought of as a person and and we thank you for joining us in this blasting of elvis <laughs> this nuanced blasting of elvis <laughs> it was a pleasure. elvis i feel like occupies a particular icon space in my mind because i was introduced to him by a person who was a full-on elvis fangirl and so it's actually been it's felt really exciting and transgressive to be like, actually, fuck Elvis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. So um, I can firmly say that this podcast's stance is fuck Elvis. Yes, yes. Is it going to be fuck Elvis the movie? We will see <laughs> next week. <laughs> um, 
yeah uh it's gonna be a lot of fun uh thank you so much for joining me and to the people who have been watching have been listening all this way uh if you like the show you can subscribe on all whatever wherever you're streaming it you can subscribe to my sub stack you can share it with your friends it's one of the best things you can do uh and yeah i'll see you next week I disagree, disagree, disagree.